Well, good morning again, everyone. Hope that you had a good celebration of the new year and had a good week. You're hunkering down for the big snowstorms tomorrow. It's going to be fun getting some snow and making some snowmen. Got to look positively on it. But you know, as we come into this new year, we find ourselves in an interesting season. We find ourselves in an interesting season as a body and perhaps individually as well. Later this month, we're going to have the opportunity to uh, have a vote on whether or not we would like to disassociate from the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, kind of going our own way, blazing our own path forward. Um, And as I've mentioned in the past, I know that there have been some that just wanted to vote right there in June after the national conference. And um, just with the matters at hand in terms of ordaining women as pastors. Now, there has been um, some intentional slowdowns in this process on behalf of myself and leadership because there's a lot more that goes into this process than just simply having a vote. It's not just a simple, let's have a vote, move on, everything's honky-dory. There's a lot of other things behind the scenes that happen. Now, obviously, people could have just left right after the vote Uh, That happened with the National, found a different church, found something else that they uh, would align with a little bit more closely. But seeing as how many of us have still stayed through this process, I'm encouraged because it shows more of a united front as we go forward in terms of continuing to work together, having the conversations. You know, because the vote is just one step in the process. There's so much more that needs to be done and understood as a body through this whole process. Um, One thing that is stuck out in my mind is the opportunity that we would have to be able to kind of reassess where we're at as a church, who we are as a church, what our mission and what our vision should look like. Now, when when we look at that type of direction, it's kind of an assumed thing on my part that God is at the center of that, that we're spending some time in deep prayer understanding as we're moving forward, we're trying to follow the word of God as best we can, listening to his leading, using that, that gift of discernment. You know, when it comes to vision, a lot of times that is formulated by the senior pastor as they kind of look at the gifts and the, the strengths within the body. When we look at what's around us in a community, the goals that we have, the, the things that we're standing firm on in scripture and applying that, making goals for the the body to come alongside of. And through prayer, through conversations with leadership and with many of you, we hope to make some good attainable targets, some different goals to achieve some of that vision where we're moving forward in the same direction together. Now again, there's a lot of work ahead of us and that us includes everyone. It's not just leadership because this is a body of believers and we are a priesthood of believers so it takes everyone and after last week I had a couple people come up and just kind of give some feedback which was wonderful Um, just some different changes that they would like to see some different ideas of different ministries and that's awesome for two ways Uh, first I love to hear your heart in terms of how we might be meeting some of the discipleship goals that you have set in your own life some different things that you have going on Secondly, it allows me a chance to pray with, for, over you, to release you and bless you in different ministries. Because when you have a passion to see something like that, it's good to step up in those areas. 
and to give those opportunities to do that. So I've definitely been in prayer in a lot of different ways. And what I've been praying a lot about um, in terms of how to lead us into something that is phrased more as coming further up and further in, as Aslan describes it in the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, where there's encouragement, where there is a chance for us to pursue God at all levels, entering into the depths and the richness of who God is. And that's, that's the approach that I desire. And you fight the approach of something where it's maybe more beating into submission, pounding on the pulpit, saying you're not doing this or you're not doing that. You know, that's not a very effective way to disciple. But, you know, when you try to move a body of believers, when there's change that's present, a lot of times it can be like pulling teeth. It can be difficult to get people to move, and that can cause different frustrations. So there are different things that are going to be happening over the next year that might make some of us uncomfortable. Just know that. Just kind of be prepared for that. You know, there might be areas where there has to be a a vacuum of absence that's there, that's realized to see if people will step up. But, you know, most importantly, I think within our body, there has to be a desire and a passion to run after Jesus. And as a leader, I've always tried to run with those that are ready to run. You know, part of me has, has thought that, well, we have to have a vision and a mission in place for day one. But if God has shown me anything through this process, it has been a very steady dose of just one step at a time. Understanding that he is working mightily within this body. And it's cool to see how we move forward within, it, within the new membership or within the new uh, structure and within the membership. Um, you know, as we've been seeking the Lord over the past month and we've experienced that, we try not to get ahead of ourselves. You know, we've invested in one another, and we need to know what, what you are investing in, what you are giving your time to in terms of the vision, in terms of mission, in terms of coming on board to say, yes, I want to be a part of what this church is about. Um, so as I prep for the annual meeting and the vote that is upcoming and the few months that follow, just be in prayer. You know, we'll have a lot of things kind of unfolding over the next couple of months, and we'll have time to go through some of that nitty-gritty, and I'll try my best to communicate as best I can. But today, I want to continue the discussion that we started last week with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. We're going to read the next portion of that. It's a, a famous portion of Scripture that details the small, still voice. And today I want us to be able to apply this passage in light of what we're going through and asking certain questions that are asked of Elijah. You know, as we try to understand that we're getting a fresh start, so to speak, and maybe starting from ground zero, where is it that the Lord has for us today? So if you are there in 1 Kings with me, I'll invite you to stand if you would like as we read God's word this morning. And I will be beginning in verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, 
the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Father, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truths this morning. Help us to see um, just how you have moved in Elijah's life and allow us to apply that to our own. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. All right. So what we see in this passage is a wonderful interchange, a kind of back and forth between God and Elijah. And there's a few things that can stand out for us. Um, I want to start off with how he comes to a cave. You know, a cave has some symbolic meaning that we may not always pick up on. But as we follow his narrative up to this point, uh, we see that he is searching for the places that God had met with people like Moses or other people of the faith in, in mighty ways where God had shown up to them and given them direction. And, and you can you can read what's going on and you can think in a rhetorical way like, all right, Elijah, what are you really doing here? What are you seeking? Because God has showed up in strong ways in your life. He has been a part of your life. What are you really searching for? You know, and as he comes to this cave in the mountain, we have to understand that a cave is not necessarily a good place for someone to search out, even for the, the heroes of the faith. You know, perhaps if you're looking for some shelter within a storm, sure. But historically, caves were not good things. Hebrews 11, the, the chapter of the Hall of Faith, as people know it as, says this near the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 35, it says, Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they may gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. So that's speaking about the early church, where people, to escape persecution, would flee into the wilderness, would flee into the mountains, and they would hide in the caves. You think of David and Saul. David, a lot of times as he's fleeing from Saul, would find himself hiding in a cave. You think about what Saul would go into the cave to do in terms of relieving himself. You know, so caves were not necessarily a good place. Caves brought about a sense of despair, of depression, of fear. Um, you think about the end times as it says that people will try to hide behind rocks or hide in caves to escape the judgment of God. So again, it brings about this sense of fear, and we can see that in Elijah's life, especially as we looked at the passage last week, the start of chapter 19. For more rationale in this, you just look up into chapter 18. You can see in verses 4 and verses 13, this situation of oppression under Jezebel. We have Obadiah hiding a hundred other prophets in different caves on Mount Carmel. A cave is a dark place for someone in a dark mood. It's a place of fear. So perhaps when we look at the passage as a whole then, we can appreciate how when God is speaking to Elijah, he is trying to draw Elijah out of the cave, out of his despair, out of his depression, and more fully into his presence, even if there is that reluctance on Elijah's part to do it. See, Elijah, he wants his complaint heard. He wants to be understood, but he doesn't necessarily always want to face the reality of what God is going to say. Again, a parallel in our own lives that I think that we can subscribe to. Now, as we go through this this narrative here, we can see uh, some different connections that we want to pay attention to, but we also see how a lot of it is written in pairs. You can see twos in a lot of ways. Um, You can see how things are worded uh, in verse 9. You have the word of the Lord speaking. And then in verse 13, it just simply changes over to the voice or a voice that speaks to Elijah. It's the same question that's asked in both places. Elijah's response is exactly the same in both instances as well. But look at this question that's asked of Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, I love that question because it shows that he is not where he is supposed to be. I stressed this last week in terms of who this is. This is Elijah. He's one of the greatest prophets. He is, you know, he is a chief figure in the Old Testament. He has three chapters devoted to him within the the book of Kings here. And, you know, we see that he is not where he's supposed to be. We can look to any hero of the faith and we can see their misgivings, um, their failings, their shortcomings within Scripture. So it shouldn't catch us by surprise, but at the same time, it's still interesting to hear that type of a question. With so many of the different connections that you see between verses chapter or verse chapters 19, 19 and 17 and 18 and a little bit into 20 even, you see a lot of different connections within the text. I want to back up a little bit and go through some of these. So look up with me into chapter 17. I just want want you to be able to see some of the patterns that are in Scripture. In chapter 17 of 1 Kings, beginning in verse 2, 
And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. Skip down to verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a liter, or a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Um, and then skip down to chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show, him, show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And then chapter 19, verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So, you know, when you look at those first three passages, you see how God is instructing Elijah where to go, and he goes. But because of fear, he leaves on his own in chapter 19, and he comes to this mountain. Now, this this whole issue will be kind of resolved in verse 15, as God again tells him what to do or where to go, and Elijah does go. But here we see that the word of the Lord asks this question, and I think it's a question that we need to ask ourselves frequently as well. What are we doing here? Now, this is a question that could be asked individually and one corporately. It can be asked in order to assess how well we're following the Lord, Are we moving to where the Lord has directed us to go, where he has told us to go? Or perhaps are we moving out of fear? Where is it that the Lord has called us to be? What has he called us to do? Can you answer that question as an individual? If you can, I would love to hear that answer so that I can support you in any way that I can. Because when we move to a corporate understanding of that question, you then can assess, all right, can this body of believers help equip me? Can they help support me to fulfill the calling that the Lord has given me? Does the leadership have enough guidance? Are there the right kind of programs? Is there organization to help me in this path? Because, you know, sometimes a body might not be the right fit based on the giftings, based on the callings that people have. That's why we have so many different ones in different communities. You think about what it takes to have a clear understanding of what the Lord has called you to do, what he has called you to be. And that's important because as a church body, we have to understand corporately, we want to equip one another, we want to disciple one another, we want to encourage one another to fulfill the callings that the Lord has in our lives. You know, when I ask this question of myself, I usually ask it at least once a quarter to see where the Lord has me, where he needs me to be, what do I need to preach on? And then I break that question down each week as I approach the different passages. What is it that needs to stand out in this passage? What do the people need to hear? And at times as you're going through this process, you know, just as kind of Joel was hitting on, you can, 
you can be attacked by the enemy and you can focus on your failings. You can focus on your shortcomings or your walk with God. It's not where it needs to be. Maybe I'm not where I need to be, where he has called me to be. So there's that struggle that you have that where we know that we need to be with the Lord, but you're wrestling with the enemy and you can get hung up on that negative. But that question is an honest question. It's one that can call you back into the fold, call you back into the calling to assess where you're at, to make strides forward. You know, if we're able to confess the failings that we have, then we can cling to Christ all the more. And we can cling to who he calls us to be. You know, when we see what Elijah's doing here, when we look at his answer, for, for instance, we can see maybe perception's not always the reality that's surrounding him, where he's maybe tweaking some of that reality a little bit because he's believing things that are not true. So again, this is a frequent question to ask if we're wanting to grow in the Lord, if we're wanting to grow in our walk and understand what God has called us to do. So again, what are you doing here? What has God called you to be here for? And then are you doing it? Are you walking in that? You know, because one warning that I, that I have, that I've heard many times, not just within this church, but just within church communities, when I ask people about, you know, why are you a part of this church? I'm a part of this church because they preach the word. Great. Is that what it means to be church? Or does that, does that instead go into more of our consumerist tendencies that we see in our society? Where we come just to get, rather than to serve, rather than to do what God has called us to do. It's a dangerous mindset. I mean, it's good to definitely hear the word of God being preached. Don't, don't mishear that. But if that's our understanding of what church is, that might need to be corrected. Why are you here? You know, when we look at Elijah's experience, he's confronted with this question. And then we look at his answer, and I think it also presents us with another warning. Something that we need to avoid, and that is pride. Look at his answer. All that he can remember is the po that is positive is his own prophetic authority and authenticity. Looking at verse 10, where does the focus lie? I have been furiously zealous. I have been very jealous for Yahweh. I, even o I only, am left. Now this is a repeat for what he says up in 1822. And I like how one commentator puts it. He says, any prophet who sees things going on badly in his ministry and as a result wants to abandon it and perhaps surrender his very life must assuredly have forgotten whom his real strength comes from. Now I kind of relate this exchange to the exchange that happens in Jonah chapter four, the back and forth between Jonah and God, where Jonah is talking about and he's complaining about how God is merciful and he's gonna spare the Ninevites. You know, in his stubbornness, Jonah doesn't want God's grace to be for everyone. He only wants it to be for the Israelites. He doesn't think that the Ninevites are worthy of God's grace. Many times, maybe we can get in that same mindset. I'm glad I've got it, but I don't want you to have it because that means I gotta call you a brother and I don't like you very much. 
You know, it's an attitude where we're trying to control God. We're trying to control salvation. When you look at that exchange and you look at Elijah's exchange and you can see him complaining and grumbling and maybe a little bit of whininess here and there about ministry, again, I can relate to both of these prophets. I've definitely had both of these types of things happen in ministry at various points as my time as a pastor. But you look at the argument that he's putting forward and you can at least feel his desperation, his desire for the Lord to come through. But when I look at his desperation, I I view it in the sense of perhaps a teenager. You gotta believe me. I'm the only one that's left. You know, I've done everything that I can. They're all against me. They're trying to kill me. You have to believe me, Lord. I love the Lord's response. I just view it because I'm a dad. I view it as a dad. Like, all right, just go stand out before the mountain. You know, you want to say all of these things? You want to make these claims? Like you're the only one? Like I didn't put the stars in place. I don't know how many people right now are serving me, but yet you do? You're going to tell me what's, what's good? Okay. But I don't think you're ready for what's about to happen. But I'm going to open up your eyes a little bit. You know, and then... As it moves to the Lord passing by the mountain, you have the strong wind, you have the earthquakes, you have the fire, all huge theophanies, all different ways that God has showed up in the past. You know, especially the fire. This should be very obvious for Elijah because he just had the fire of God come down from the heavens to take up that sacrifice. You had the, the, the pillar of flame that led the, the Israelites during the Exodus wanderings, right? You, you have all of these different ways that God has showed up in the past but yet the Lord was not in any of them. You know, and I think that this is a rebuke not only for Elijah, but for any religious person who relies on big cinematic-themed explosions and big grandiose manifestations, all the while neglecting the quiet, simple piety, the kindness, the grace of God. Many times throughout the Bible, we, we try to figure out God, so that we can control him, so that we can confine him, so that we can contain him. And we miss the fact that he is God. The big ways in which Elijah is expecting to meet with God apparently cause him to go back in the cave. You know, you think about witnessing strong enough winds and storms that will break a mountain apart. You think about seeing a pillar of fire or this big fire or feeling this earthquake. It would be terrifying to witness. And yet God is not in them. Instead, he is in, as the King James Version says, the still, small voice. Many other versions now are saying the the sound of a low whisper or the small, gentle sound. See, God is showing Elijah that he cannot limit his understanding of God. He wants God to show up in mighty ways. He wants God to have this revival. He wants God to to cause this revival in his people to call them back to him to usurp the throne of this evil king and queen and make everything go back to the way that it was where they're serving God and everything's cheery again. He wants God to bless Elijah's will. 
rather than understand that it is God's will that he is going to judge Israel. God is showing that he is also in the stillness. And then hopefully in our minds and hearts, we can make the obvious connection to the birth of the Messiah. To where all of Israel is expecting this king to come is the form of the Messiah to overthrow the Roman oppressors, to become king and lead Israel into victory and to glory. And instead, the Messiah comes in the form of a baby, humble, lowly, quiet, serene. Now, could God still come down in fire and shake the foundations of the earth? Absolutely. Can he be a gentle touch to, to someone who is hurting and grieving? Praise God that he does. See, the messages of the theophanies that are here seem to be that Elijah should not always expect God to break into his life in such a spectacular way that only he expects, such as the wind and the earthquakes and the fire, because God also reveals himself in clear, intelligible communications. And it's at that point where Elijah wraps his face and goes back out to the entrance of the cave. You know, when we're wrestling with this question of what are you doing here, what is our response to that? You know, and and when we see a response from God, how are we approaching that? Is it, I expect a certain answer? Or is it one in humility? How are we, how are we treating that holiness of God? How are we expecting his answer? Do we expect it to come in mighty ways? Do we expect it to come in in silent, still ways? Again, in our hearts and minds, sometimes we get in these patterns, we get in these habits when we're trying to control and affect how God can communicate to us. And we close ourselves off to the other ways because that's no longer good. God has shown consistently throughout scriptures that he will show up in ways that are least expected. And we have to be able to discern those. Now, obviously, discernment is a gift of the Spirit, but we all need to practice discernment. Just like evangelism is a gift of the Spirit, some people are just really good at evangelism. But we all have the gospel in our hearts and minds. We all need to be sharing the gospel message. It is a call for all of us. But it's something that we could continue to grow in. So we see how Elijah is stepping out in humility here before the Lord. In the passage, the question is repeated, and Elijah gives the same response. So it's not in the theophanies that he is able to relieve his complaint. He has the same complaint. It remains. So for him, he has been furiously zealous. The people of Israel have forsaken the covenant of God. They've thrown Yahweh's altars down. They've killed his prophets. They are evil. They're seeking to take his his life, and he's claiming that he is the last prophet, and he wants to know, what now, Lord? What do I go do now? Again, you can still see his despair. You can still see his desperation, seeking this answer from the Lord. And we're not really told uh, of a change in his mental state or in his perspective. We're just told that he does um, go. 
We're not told whether or not he actually anoints these people like he's asked to. It's kind of assumed that he does. But he, he gets this final act from the Lord that he's got to go do, and he goes. But while he's, he's in the cave, I want to kind of discuss in this last little piece here what's happening to him. Because it's, it's like he's losing his heart to serve God. Especially as he's saying something, you know, I don't want to live anymore, I'm done. You see that he has lost heart to serve God. And it's a very real thing that happens to especially people in ministry. You know, you look at the statistics, I think pastors, I think it's around 10% still. Those that are starting off as a pastor will retire as a pastor. So ministry kind of chews them up, spits them out type of thing. But as I was going through those statistics this week, the Lord blessed me and he was just like, you know what, sometimes it's just for a season that I call people to serve me in different ways. That's a good hope. Because, you know, when you look at those statistics, you see how pastors lose heart. But you know, it's not just relegated to pastors only. People in the church can also lose heart as they serve others. Because people in the church can be hurt by others. And perhaps you've been hurt deeply by Christians, by church people. And you no longer want to serve in certain capacities. I get it. Sheep bite. It's one of those things that I prepared for through seminary, understanding what I was going to be coming into as I step into life with people. But I think what caught me off guard was sheep can also bite your family. And that one hurts because as a dad, as a husband, you want to protect your family. You have that sense about, about you, but you're not always going to be there to protect them. And, you know, as they are believers as well, they too need to be ready for those battles, even if it's seeming to come from other believers. And through those battles, they're called not to lose heart. So to, to hit that home, I'd like you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I, I want us to understand that this is Paul speaking about ministry. And listen carefully to what he says here in chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, 
but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death, in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you look at that chapter and you look at how Paul is describing to the people to not lose heart in the ministry. You know, Paul, he overcomes discouragement because he discovers the strength for endurance by becoming involved in more significant ministries. You know, he, could, he couldn't give up. He couldn't disengage because his task was too important. And you think about his task. His task is spreading the gospel message. It is the gospel of grace. It is Christ. It is too important to to lose heart, to give up, to be disengaged, to understand that there are lost people in our families, in our communities, in our lives that are going to go to hell because they don't know who Jesus is, because they have not received his salvation. So for Paul, that is too important of a ministry to just give up, to just disengage. No, his task is spreading the gospel message. What is our task before us? What are the tasks that we have where maybe we're tempted to lose heart? Or maybe we want to complain and grumble. As a believer, can you define your task? See, I think that's the first step. Because then as we understand this calling from the Lord, we're not going to lose heart because we understand that the work is too important that the significance in our task, like Paul, will keep us moving forward. You know, Paul, he traveled, he witnessed, he preached in spite of persecution, in spite of the opposition that he faced, in spite of the barriers and the hardships and the circumstances. You know, he's telling all of the believers that they need to continue to run the race with perseverance. He tells the believers, we don't beat about the air like we're boxing with shadows. Instead, we have a specific aim. We have a specific target as we follow our Lord in order to glorify and magnify him. And it's kingdom-minded. Now, when we look back at Elijah, he's in despair. He's not knowing what to do. And God gives him this final task. Right, So as God gives him this task, Elijah's kind of woken up out of his despair and he goes. He's, he's going because he's been given this another important task by God. 
And, and you know, maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you know what, I don't have too much to offer. I don't have any good skills. Maybe I'm too old. I don't know enough people. And you might be sitting here in despair. You might be a little bit depressed today. You might not have the direction or the desire to continue on. But know this. While you still have breath, God has a plan for you. He has given you that breath to bless him. You have opportunities each and every day. We have the opportunity to start a day praying for that opportunity to share the gospel message. To have eyes to see those that God puts in our life. And we need to take advantage of those things to be more kingdom-minded. Don't give in to the despair. Don't give in to the consumerist tendencies that I just come to this church to get something good and feel good about myself. We see that too much in culture. Know that the power to overcome your discouragement ultimately comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is God working in you. First and foremost, He is supernaturally reinforcing us, enabling us to overcome anything. You know, when when a person looks at the circumstances that surround them, it's taking our focus off of Jesus. Just like Peter walking on water, as he's looking at the waves, as he's looking at the trials and the circumstances, he begins to sink. When our focus is on the temporal, that means our focus isn't on Christ. It's not on the eternal. You know, when we read that passage in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is focused on the eternal. Yes, there's a lot of temporal things that are going on. Absolutely. But do we have an eternal perspective as we're approaching those? The Spirit helps to keep our minds and sights focused on him. And from the passages here in 1 Kings 19, over the last couple weeks, For a while, at least, we see that Elijah has forgotten the eternal, and he is focused on the temporal things around him. And that is discouraging. He's focusing on those things that bring in despair. And you think, well, no wonder why you're down. You're worried about your own life. No wonder why you're hiding in a cave. You're afraid of death. But when God has revealed himself in power and in stillness, With his presence, Elijah focuses his perspective on the eternal again, and he goes. You know, he goes to where the Lord called him to go, and he puts the cloak over Elisha. It's kind of a sign of passing the torch. And the funny moment I had this week was I was going to give the message wearing a cloak. And I was going to walk down and just put it over someone. Say, all right, you're it. You know, but that's the way that the call of God works. It comes out of the blue at times to where he says, get up and go. And it goes back to that question of why are you here? When the Lord asks questions of of despair in his own heart about the people that are lost and says, who will I send? Is our response good enough to say, here I am, Lord, send me? Or send that person. They, they can speak in public. They, they know more about theology. They know more about this. Send that person. I'll go count stones in the driveway. But you know, if God calls you to do that, then he calls you to do that. Are we open to what the Lord calls us to do? When we think about how the, the calling of God comes, it catches us out of the blue. 
Well, we need to reflect on that question of what are you doing here? Because the tasks are too important for us to just be disengaged, to be stagnant, to just want to hear a good message. The lives of the lost are at stake, and we can't be playing games because we have the gospel message ready to share. So what are you doing here? Let's pray. Father, as we continue down this road as a body, as we explore vision and mission and purpose, Lord, I pray that you would make it abundantly clear to us whom you have given life, that we are to be a light for you. So I pray that you would equip us, that you would allow us to see those opportunities that we have each and every day to be your messengers in word and deed. I pray that we would be able to see your presence, not just looking for the big things or just the small things or just the preconceived ways, but Lord, that we would have a heart and a passion for you, that we would have a desire to run after you, no matter where you call us to run. Allow us to be ready. Allow us to not have fear, but to know that where you would send us would be where you would want us to be that we would be standing in your will, not opposed to it, not saying, no, I want to go this way instead. So Lord, I pray for humility. I pray against our selfishness and pride. And I pray that we can stand up firm for you. Not as a way to be right, but as a way to advance your kingdom forward because it is only you that matters. So we, may we just honor and glorify you above all things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.